0: Hi, Alison. Hi, Sarah. Let's start the show 17,000 kilometers away from France with
1: New Caledonia. Yeah, France's overseas territory in the Pacific Ocean. France colonized it 170 years ago. Yeah, and today it has moved on. It has its own local
0: government, but it still very much depends on France. In 1988, it was agreed there would be a process of decolonization, and 10 years later, Paris and New Caledonia agreed on three referendums on independence so that the islanders could decide whether to remain
1: French or go it alone. Right, this was the famous Numea Accords, right? Mm -hmm. And these referendums were held in 2018, another in 2020, and then the last one in 2021. All three
0: went in favour of staying French, although the second one was quite a close call. And then pro-independence parties led by the indigenous Kanak peoples refused to recognise the result of the third one. Mm. They'd asked for it to be postponed. We're in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Paris refused, and so they boycotted the vote. Since then, there's basically been major political deadlock between pro-independence and loyalist parties. They're struggling to even talk to each other about the future status of the archipelago. It turns out it's always been a bit tricky to have open discussions in New Caledonia. The population is very small, just 270,000 people, so the size of a medium-sized town in mainland France, And as you can imagine, it can be a bit awkward having very different political opinions. You might bump into that person at the market. Um, There's a fear of offending, so much so that New Caledonia has been nicknamed le pays du non-dit, the country where a lot of things go unsaid, or, as Jenny Briefer puts it, taboo land. Briefer is a Caledonian journalist and writer. She was born there to French parents, and she spent a good part of her life trying to get the conversation going. She started a school newspaper when she was just 12. She hosted a TV show aged 18. She then worked for a Canac radio station. Most recently, she wrote a triptych of plays, one around each of the referendums.
2: On en a marre de vous dire qu'on veut notre indépendance. Quand est-ce que vous allez comprendre? on en a marre de vous dire qu'on veut rester dans <laughs> la France. Quand est-ce que vous allez comprendre? On n'en peut plus <laughs> de <laughs>
0: This is the latest one. It's called Fin Bien
2: Ensemble. The
0: plays have proven very popular, both in indigenous communities in the north and in the capital Noumea, which is home to most of the territory's white Europeans. I sat down with Briefer, who was in Paris recently, to talk about the plays and what it means for her
3: to be New Caledonian. I really wanted to shake the coconut tree (laughs) because uh, my country, we call it the pays du non We could say tabouland. And so... um, I observed as a journalist that people were divided politically, but they were much closer one to another than what they thought. And I thought at that time we needed as well to express really freely our disappointment about our politicians on both sides. And so for my first play, Firmelle Barret, there was one actress, and she's a Kanak, and we knew that was the perfect match because no one could say you are against independence or against France. I mean, we were a white girl, a black girl, and we were together just to say, OK, we want things to change in our country, and we want us to talk together, and we are fed up with our politicians, because they are not up to the task. I think that today we are in a dead end, not politically, but intellectually, because our leaders, they didn't make the effort to think about decolonization now in 2023. What does it mean? It doesn't mean the same as during the 80s, because things have changed. The world have changed. China is now everywhere in the Pacific. There's a lot of in- interdependence between the countries, um, so we need to think differently.
0: And so the latest
3: play features a couple yeah. who argue a lot. Yeah, for me, it's uh, like an allegory of New Caledonia. I mean, you have this couple, with a black woman and this uh, white man. they deeply in love together. They cannot live the one without the other. But when it comes to politics, they just fight. But they cannot separate. They love each other too much. And I think that's us. <laughs> and so this plot was perfect to show us. In a way, you're promoting a kind of creolization yeah. of the New Caledonian culture. I think the creolization has started years ago, and we go on with that. But the thing is, from an outside point of view, people used to look at New Caledonia as a country where there's white against black. But it's really much more than that. We have the white, the Kanaks, Malaysian, Tahitian, Vietnamese, Indonesians, Vanuatis people. We are on this land uh, for several generations, so of course we are mixed. And, um, today if you go in a tribe for a custom, like a big event, when it's time to eat, you're going to eat le bunya, which is the traditional Kanak uh, dish. You're going to eat the bami, which is Indonesian, you're going to eat the porosuk, the sugar pork, which is Vietnamese. And of course, there's no meal in a tribe without the French baguette. The first thing you do in the tribe every morning is buying baguettes. And of course, we can say, yes, OK, but so what? Yeah, it's just like little cultural yeah, yeah. touches.
0: It's nothing compared to the big deal about being independent.
3: Yeah, but... I think that life is as well about all these little things. But the creolization is um, in our heart as well. We cannot imagine uh, living one uh, apart from each other. It's uh, just impossible. Yeah, orana. Moi, je voulais <laughs> savoir si la cafet avait remboursé les doliprane sans ordonnance. Parce que quand je regarde le journal de nouvelles conneries I j'ai de ces mots de crâne. Avant, c'était simple. You used a lot of
0: mockery and laughter to get your message across that actually you have more in common than you have separating yeah. you. You've yeah. referred to it as collective therapy. Oh, yeah.
3: I think that in New Caledonia, we have a neurosis about identity. So these three plays, it was a bit of a cathartic moment. You know, for the Canucks, the question of identity was the base of their revendication. Because with colonization, it was uh, denied. And for the others, it's a bit complicated to be born in a country where there is an independent uh, revendication because, uh, of course, you're not legitimate, in a way, on that land because you are not Kanak. So, yeah, we all suffer from this uh, neurosis and people cannot understand how difficult it is for us as a country, this question of colonisation. Of course, the indigenous people were the first to suffer the most about colonisation in history, but today we all suffer from the legacy of that.
0: What has been your experience of this identity question then? You you were born in New Caledonia. Did you grow up feeling comfortable being a non-Kanak. I mean, you were a child during the 1984-88 troubles. It was virtually civil war.
3: What was your memory of that? As a child during that time, I felt like there were two worlds, the adult world and the children world. So like in my neighbourhood, my best mates, they were uh, Kanak people. And then there were the adult world and what we could see on TV. So the politicians fighting, some footage of riots and things like that. So you were scared? Yeah, I was scared about the Canucks politicians at that time because I remember sometimes they say that why I should leave and they would put us on a boat, uh, that kind of things. And send you to mainland France? Yeah. But did you know France? No, and we had no link at that time with France. And so I remember a um, discussion with my friends at school. So we were seven uh, during the school break. We were under the flamboyant tree. We were talking, you heard about uh, leaving your country? And we we're like, can you imagine how is it to be in France? I heard that. It's cold in France. Actually, I used this memory of my uh, childhood in the third play. Caledonians, they were moved by this uh, scene.
0: So happily for you anyway, you you were not forced to leave and you became a little bit famous because I guess New Caledonia, it's a big territory, but with a small population. So yeah. just 270,000 people. Yeah. No, um, no, yeah so you nice. became a bit of a well-known face quite quickly. <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, it's uh, because I started to host a show on on the local TV. And that experience on TV was really important to me because I realized I really wanted to become a journalist one day to create a link between people. That was my obsession. Mm -hmm. And that experience was really important as well because when I was at the television at that time, I could uh, feel really deeply all the political pressure on the media on New Caledonia at that time. There was one um, politician really famous and important in our country, Jacques Lafleur. He was the figurehead of of our country and all the most for um, the white people because Mm. he was the one who fight for us to remain French. And he was like a tycoon. At that time during the 80s, 90s, he wanted to control. There was no censorship, but people were afraid to talk. And so um, once on TV, I spoke up in front of him, asking him a question about the lack of freedom of speech in New Caledonia. (laughs) And I was 16. (laughs) So that was a big shock for the population. People were really afraid of him, of his status and everything. And uh,
0: and why weren't you?
3: At that moment, I felt I had to talk. It was really in, in me, like I couldn't help it was the same uh, process that for the play, it's uh, just I, I I have to. It's for my country, I cannot uh, sh- shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so I asked him that question, and uh, actually he didn't really answer. And I asked him again, and people were so shocked. So at that time, for people in New Caledonia, I became like a freedom of speech figure, and... That's a big step in my um, friendship with the independentist people because they were amazed that uh, a white young girl could protest against a white leader. So I started to work for the the independentist radio, uh, Radio Gido, and I was the first white from New Caledonia to work with them. And Gido means uh, link. You see, we can do things together with our double culture. And uh, that's the richness of New Caledonia today. And I, um, I think the march of history for me is much more to progress, go on with the combination of our two worlds, of our two civilizations, because we are already mixed. I mean, I know I'm white, but I have the kind of culture in me for some part. I mean, I know how to behave in a, in a tribe i've done a lot of customs i have my country in me and for the kanak uh, people as well they have a lot of uh, of this western world in them today and we cannot deny that i mean uh, of course they speak french but it's it's much more than that i mean uh, jean-marie chibayou used to say uh, so he was the leader of the kanak the the independence movement in yeah. the 1980s Jean-Marie Thibault uh, said this uh, really famous say. He said, our culture is in front of us. Well, at that time, it was during the, the travels. Uh, he was talking to the Kanak community. But I think we can take this word for us as uh, New Caledonians. Our culture is in front of us. In my next play, some part of the play are going to be in a Kanak language called the Nielayouk. There's 28 languages in Kanak. It's an amazing culture. It's important to promote our language. I mean, it's my language as well, even if I'm I'm not a speaker. But it's part of my heritage. And it's my duty to promote it and to defend it. And and I'm a New Caledonian. I was born on this land. It was, of course, first the land of the Kanak people. But... um, Today, it's as well my land.
1: So she's clearly very attached to New Caledonia. She identifies to some extent, a large extent, with the Canucks. Does she support independence?
0: Well, she voted against independence in all three referendums. For her, New Caledonia just isn't ready to go it alone. Mm. Uh, She says public services like health and education couldn't function without funding from Paris. She's also concerned about growing Chinese influence in the region. And, you know, you, you need a certain amount of funds to sort of defend yourself against that. She doesn't rule out independence one day, maybe further down the line. But she says there needs to be a lot more dialogue between now and then.
1: So this is an opera uh, based on a text written by Pierre Loti, who died a hundred years ago this week on the tenth of June, nineteen twenty-three. Now Loti was a military officer; he became a navy captain, but he moonlighted as a novelist. He wrote dozens of novels, and we know him actually more as a novelist than as his military career.
0: Yeah, he's not the only one in France, is he, to be sort of both
1: a, a public figure and moonlighting uh, as a novelist. Yeah, even erotic novelists. You've got, like, yeah. the junior minister now, Marlène Schiappa, who racy books before she entered the government and has since written more mm. under a pseudonym.
0: You've got the finance minister Bruno Le Maire, he's published 10 novels uh, the latest, right in the middle of the debate and all the fighting over the pension reform. Yeah, that drew criticism mm. you know, what's he doing writing books when the country's on fire? <laughs> yeah, and there were a few choice scenes uh, in that book. True. Yeah, true. Uh, came in for, anyway, yeah didn't please everybody. Um, even French presidents have tried their hand at fiction, haven't they Sarah? Mm. Georges Pompey and François Mitterrand wrote books, and Valérie Giscard d'Estaing also indulged in some quite uh, erotic writing, in fact.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, Pierre Loti was known for his exotic novels mm. and short
0: stories. Okay. Not erotic.
1: No, no, not so much. <laughs> Many were inspired by his own life and the voyages he made around the world as a Navy officer. So he was born in Rochefort as Louis-Marie Julien Viau, and he entered the Naval School in Brest at 17, two years after the death of his brother, who was a Navy doctor, 14 years older than him. His brother inspired him with his own descriptions of far-off places that he had visited. The Navy allowed him to travel the world. He liked to present himself as unread, but his friends knew otherwise. In 1876, fellow naval officers persuaded him to turn passages of his diary about experiences in Istanbul into a novel. Hmm. So that became... Aziadeh was published anonymously in 1879 It included a love story between him and a woman who was part of a harem. Mm. He actually had a lifelong interest in Turkey. Yeah, it's, it's interesting,
0: isn't it? That's actually how I first heard of him mm. uh, having a coffee in the Pierre
1: Loti Café in Istanbul. There you go. Now, the name Loti first appeared the next year. In his novel, The Marriage of Loti, which actually that opera was based off of, it's a Polynesian idol about going native. Um, Based on experiences he had when he lived in Tahiti for two months as part of his naval training, he was there given the nickname Loti, the name of an exotic flower. Hmm. The year after that book, 1881, he published his first book as Pierre Loti. That's when the pseudonym was born. Le Roman d'un Spahi, The Novel of a Spahi, which were the cavalry regiments of the French army recruited from the colonies. This one's based in Senegal. So Loti explored the exoticism of far-off lands. Also closer to home, he wrote books based in Brittany and the Basque country. He was elected to the Académie Française on May 21st, 1891. He actually won out against Emil Zola. Oh, quite a feat. (laughs) There you go. He continued to write about Japan, Morocco, their books based in Jerusalem, India, China. We know him as a writer, but he did have a big military career. He became captain in 1906. Loti died in 1923 in Andai in the south of France. His house in Rochefort, where he was born, is now a museum, featured a large collections of objects that he gathered around the world. Each room has a different theme. There's a mosque. There's a banquet hall. It's actually under a multi-million euro renovation, financed in part by the Lotto du Patrimoine. Hmm,
0: the Heritage Lottery.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's expected to reopen in 2025. So now to football, Alison. Love it or hate it, when the Euro or World Cup comes around, it pulls us all in. Yeah, but more for the men's teams, though,
2: yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh,
1: there are
0: some very good female players. France's women's team is strong, but it remains a very macho sport here in yeah. France.
1: Yeah, and not welcoming, really, for anyone who doesn't fit the straight, virile, macho mold few professional athletes in general are openly gay. No football players in France. There's a tennis player, uh, a French
0: tennis player, Amélie Mores. she came out a few years ago.
1: Yeah, but she's a woman and (laughs) hasn't even had a very easy time of it. (laughs) Um, Of course, it doesn't mean there are no gay football players. Wissem Badkassem was one of them. He was a rising star 15 years ago, but he left the sport when he was 20 because he realized he'd never be able to come out, and it was weighing on him. He's just released a documentary series based on a book he published in 2021, where he came out officially as gay. It's called Adieu, ma honte, Farewell to my Shame. He fell in love with football as a kid. He joined the Toulouse Football Club Academy at age 13, and then the Tunisian national team at age 16. His parents are Tunisian.
2: Tu vas être vachement fort au foot, parce qu'il arrivera un jour où les gens sauront que tu aimes les garçons et donc peut-être que si tu super bon en sport ça va un peu tempérer tu vois la déception.
1: You tell yourself you're going to become really good at football because one day people will know you like boys and maybe if you're good at sports it'll temper the disappointment. This is from the documentary.
2: Et quand tu vas au stade des temps-temps il faut les tuer cette pd il faut les tuer à ta 18 ans d'entendre ça tu te dis mon avenir je le vois sur la pelouse là en entendant ça
1: When you're in the stadium and you hear all fags must die when you're 18 and you hear that, do you think your future is there on the pitch? Hmm. Wissem was competing at the highest levels in France, but as he told me, he had to keep his homosexuality a secret.
2: I was hearing a lot of slurs about gay people on the pitch, off the pitch, from my football coaches, from the fans, from everyone basically in the football industry. And and actually, it would be so much simpler if it was only one or two people that we had to remove from the equation.
1: So you were feeling like, there's no way I could be honest about who I am because I'm just going to get crushed.
2: Well, yeah, completely. A, I was like, there's no way I can say it. And B... I never saw any gay football player. I mean, the only story that I had heard of was Justin Fashanu, who committed suicide a few years after his coming out.
1: One of the things you've you've talked about and you've written about is this idea of like a a heterosexual mask that you have to wear. What does that mean?
2: Wearing the heterosexual mask means that every time I was opening the door and going out, I had to pretend that I was straight. So it's basically acting every day, all day, and that means that you have to, um, to basically joke when your teammates are making like silly jokes about gay people, or when they talk bad about women, because I think misogyny and, and homophobia are much more related than we think, and also, I mean, I had to play the game, so I had to have girlfriends. In football, it's a bit of a given that you're supposed to have a girlfriend because in theory, you're supposed to have money, you're supposed to be fit. So there's no way you could be able to explain to your teammates and everyone around you that you're going to be remaining single for the rest of your life. So
1: so this mask isn't just like, keep my head down, don't say anything. You had to sort of be actively participating in this
2: world. Completely. I mean, it's, it's more than a passive role. It's like being an actor every day. And every day for years is a very long time. There is this one girlfriend that I stayed with for three years and I hurt her very much in the sense that she really fell in love with me at some point because the thoughts about men were so strong in my head like in the end I had to tell her to switch off the light to be able to have sex with her and stuff and that's so hurtful and that's um, that was a bit of of, of an epiphany for me because that's kind of when I realized that not only I was hurting myself but I was also hurting others.
1: I imagine a lot of people who are gay and in environments where they don't feel like they can be open about it, mask exists but it seems as though maybe sports or football is maybe worse you know what is it about the world of football that that makes this maybe more intense
2: yeah football is so paradoxical in the sense that It can bring people together like no other sport and no other thing in the world, in my opinion. And we see that during international competitions, you know, when you have the World Cup or the Euro, like plenty of people who don't even like football, everybody's gathered behind the screen cheering for their national team. But what we need to say is that football is also a sport that excludes so many people. And I think in terms of exclusion, sexual minorities are the worst in football, especially to gay men. And I think it's related to the rapport that the sport has with masculinity.
1: This is in France in particular, or the whole sport?
2: I think it's the whole sport, mm-hmm. but I think it's, it's much more present in Southern Europe. You know, all the Mediterranean kind of mindset where it's much more macho. It's all about power. You should never show your vulnerabilities
1: one of the things that you talked about too is that you're a muslim yeah. right and and a lot of football players in france are muslim or come from muslim backgrounds and you've you've evoked that like this has something to do with the religion also very catholic um, religious player
2: yeah i think i think religion adds an extra layer of complexity but to me like the reason why i remain a muslim to this day it's i've always differentiated the religion from the community and my religion has only brought me joy, it gives me a sense of purpose, but it is true that a part of the religious community has a problem with me. But what I want to tell them is that it is none of their business and it's, it's not for them to judge.
1: One of the ways that you're sort of able to reconcile your religion and your Identity is you connected with Ludovic Mohamed Zayed, who's the only gay imam in France. Was finding him sort of important in the process of accepting yourself and and, and coming
2: out? Um, As a religious man, it was at some point, it was really hard to keep my faith because all the stuff I was hearing around around me was that I was wrong and, and that it was not compatible to be both gay and Muslim. Uh, And I did a lot lot of research on the topic, and one day I bumped into his book and I found the answers, because within it he explained that there was a different interpretation of the story around Sodoma and Gomorrah.
1: Which is the story that's used to justify homophobia.
2: Exactly. And I think once I read that, I was like, you know what, now I feel like I am uh, mature enough to be able to form my own perception of what my religion is.
1: So I want to go back to the football story. So so you are existing in this football world. It's becoming unbearable. At some point, you decided to go to the United States mm-hmm. and you went to play football, to play soccer yeah, there. Yeah,
2: because yeah, at that stage of my life, I was 20 years old and I had played in France. I had played in Africa with Tunisia, with the African Nations Cup. And I thought, OK, maybe try another continent. The U.S. being the new continent, I was hoping they would be more interested in young talents instead of judgment and stuff. But once I got there, I realized that the U.S., or at least the part of the U.S. that I saw in Colorado was very, very macho. So in the changing room, I could tell that all the guys were not talking about football or soccer, they were talking about women, about how many women they've had sex with, the positions and stuff. And that's kind of that's going to hit me in the sense that, okay, I was like, my God, even here, there is no way I will be able to live my life and I'm going to have to pretend again that I'm straight. Because, you know, in football, you live in a bubble. You train every day, the whole week. In the weekend, you have the the games. So you are in a closed loop with all your teammates. So lying to your teammates and your coach is exhausting because there is no escape. And also at this stage of my life, Because of the pain that I had caused to my ex-girlfriend, I didn't feel like I had it in me to do it again. I had to make a decision between my personal development and my football career.
1: And so he quit football. Um, He moved to London, he went to school, he earned a bachelor's and a master's degree and then went to work for a utility company, nothing to do with football, but he really missed it. So he started a consulting company for former athletes transitioning back into the real world, something he knew something about. And then he ran into the same issues with homophobia there, just a decade after he left as a player himself. So he decided he had to speak out. He started writing his book and came out with it in 2021. Decided to be the role model he never had, even though he's not in the world of football anymore. There's a ways to go. And he says he hasn't even had any reaction from football institutions.
2: I'm very disappointed in the French Football Federation that they've remained silent. And I think their strategy is to pretend that there is no problem with homosexuality in football because once they admit that there is a problem the public will be expecting solution so it's much easier to be in denial and to be like no it's not really an issue but but we should ask ourselves as a french society why there is zero player that is out in football it's i mean statistically and i'm the living proof that there are some
1: how would it change the game? Because like you were saying, homophobia permeates everything in the players and the fans.
2: Yeah. If you talk about the game as in football, no the sport is the same. It would not change anything but, but it would just send a such a powerful signals to all the youngsters coming up telling them that being gay is no barrier. 'Cause right now if you wanna turn pro, you're gonna be hearing insults about who you are every day. You're gonna be hearing your coach saying at halftime, come on, we're not fucking fags, move your asses. So
1: like yeah, how do you then shift a coach into like I mean, can you find coaches who will motivate using different words? I mean I mean <laughs> I
2: mean it's actually interesting you say that because within one of the conference that I did at my former club Toulouse, there was this coach of the under nineteen who said, Oh come on with say. I just heard the conference. It's a bit much because sometimes at halftime, I, I tell my, my teams, uh, come on, guys, move your ass as you're playing like facts. And I try to explain to him in a very calm manner that the French language is very rich and we have so many other verbs that he could use to motivate the kids.
1: Football seems, the way you describe it, kind of rotten in a way. And yet, you're very committed to it
2: still. Yeah, it's. I think football is so powerful. If only a few of the top players would take a stance on that, like they do with racism. I mean, we saw recently Vinicius Jr. in Madrid who was insulted Uh, like fans pretending like he was a monkey and everybody reacted in the blink of an eye. If people were doing this for homophobia, it would send such a strong signal. And you know, sport is supposed to be meritocratic. If you're good, you play. We don't care about who you love, your skin color, whatever. And
1: in France, it's been that for a long time of of an opportunity for a lot of kids who might not have had opportunities elsewhere.
2: Race-wise, not about sexual orientation, And and you know, it's not provocative when I say this. Maybe like the next Mbappe is gay, or maybe the next Zidane or the next David Beckham is gay. But the issue is that if we do not make sure that football is much more welcoming towards all kids, even a talented kid will move away from the sport. It's understandable that he's gonna go and play chess or, I mean, I have nothing against chess, but he's gonna go and do something else. And that's a loss for all of us.
1: Wisem is all in on the consciousness raising. Mm-hmm. Um, he recorded a song that's used in the documentary called Je suis en paix, I am at peace.
2: debout, fini des coups, plus jamais à genoux, je suis droit devant
1: Look at me standing up, the punches are over, never again on my knees. I'm standing tall in front of you, he sings. He's called this an ode to inner peace, tolerance, and
2: self-love.
0: So that's it for the
1: show. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. If you have any questions or comments for us, please send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Spotlight.france at RFI.fr.
0: You can also find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. We'll be back on Thursday, June the
2: 29th.
1: And you can get previous episodes at RFIEnglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye Allison. Bye bye, Sarah.
2: Je suis en paix.